Greetings, God's beloved. Thanks for tuning in to Messages of Hope, the sermon podcast series from Living Hope Lutheran Church in downtown Las Vegas. Today we're reading from the second chapter of the book of Ruth, and our preacher is Pastor Matt Metavellis. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Grace and peace to all of you from God our Father and from our, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. So, yeah, you're trusting me with the clicker today. All right. You may, you may be seated. Uh, the front half is like the good students that are standing up, and uh, the back are the good Lutherans just kind of hanging out. Uh, speaking of hanging out, uh, a couple months ago, uh, I was uh, with my family at the district in Green Valley Ranch. Anyone ever been there? All right. Not just not just Henderson people. Uh so uh, I was there uh, just getting dinner with the family. It's a nice place to walk around. There's a splash pad. Uh, I, I don't know why we were there besides, I don't know, just having something to do. But uh, I was walking kind of around the corner uh, with JP in the, in the uh, stroller and was walking toward Ben & Jerry's, which is my absolute favorite ice cream place. And I saw a bunch of people like just gathered around talking and it was kind of like this loud whispering and so I, I kind of like walked by uh, all these moms in yoga pants and I was like what's uh what's going on and one of them says shh Gene Simmons is over there and then the Italian restaurant I was like is it really Gene Simmons yeah but in the Italian restaurant totally unrecognizable uh he was not dressed like that so uh but uh, was was there, right? The, the long hair was there. I saw the VH1 show. Uh, there was uh, a guitar that he was signing. A bunch of the uh, a bunch of people in the restaurant gathered around him, and I was like, "Holy cow, that's Gene Simmons!" And I was really loud and merciless, like, "You gotta be quiet," as if everybody didn't know, right? This is the greatest part of living in Las Vegas, right? Celebrity sightings, celebrity sightings around here. Anyone, right? And not just, uh, yeah, right, we, we get to have celebrity sightings all the time. So uh, this was uh, one of the cooler ones. Uh, I did see Louis uh, Black getting into his car at the airport. That was kind of cool with his driver. But this was definitely uh, one of the coolest ones, and I was told not to make a lot of noise um, uh, because I was just so excited. I'm a big uh, rock and roll fan, uh, moderate uh, early Kiss fan. So there's a difference, I think, between just seeing somebody and recognizing somebody, right? And you had to work a little bit with Gene Simmons because he didn't have the makeup. But when you recognize someone, you know a little about them. You know their story. You know their music. You know their contributions. You know their struggles, right? You know their opinions. You know their gifts. That's a difference, that we hear about today in this story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz didn't just see Ruth. He recognized her. He knew her story. He knew about the way that she had shown kindness to her mother-in-law when it wasn't called for, giving up everything to live as a foreigner in an exile in a strange land. And because he knew that story, he recognized her. And Ruth is absolutely shocked that he does this because she is living as one of the countless invisible people in Israel 
And when, she, when uh, he does all these kind things to her, she says, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? Now, taking notice of somebody, recognizing somebody, is, I think, our deepest need. Psychologists will tell you that, right? Sure, there's food and water and shelter, but love is right up there. Shout out to Abraham Maslow, right? Someone to recognize you, someone to see you, someone to love you. I've walked with so many people going through grief that lose that person that recognizes them, that shares that time and that space with them, and what a painful thing it is. And I think we start needing to be recognized right when we are in the crib. (laughs) It's all the crying that children do, saying, recognize me, recognize me. And we don't ever outgrow it. Um, I can't say the name of his podcast in a church sermon. Um, I don't know, maybe the letters. Uh, but Mark Marin is a comedian who's been around for a while. I am a, a big fan of uh, his uh, podcast that shall not be named in here. Um, and he points out that we never really outgrow the need to be recognized. Those of you who can't read it, I'll go ahead and read the whole quote. He says, it amazes me that we're all on Twitter and Facebook. And by we... I mean adults. We're adults, right? I can't do it in his voice. But emotionally, we're a culture of seven-year-olds. Have you ever heard or ever ever had that moment when you're uploading your status and you realize that every status update is just a variation on a single request? Would somebody please acknowledge me? Would somebody please take notice of me. And hey, I do it too. Everybody in here is guilty of it, right? We've just found uh, newer and better ways of people taking notice of you, right? Pay attention to how people introduce themselves to you and how you introduce yourselves to people, right? I just spent a a week uh, with other uh, church people in Columbus and it was like, where's your church? How big is it? What programs are you doing? Every time you get together, uh, people, and maybe it's just pastors, right? People are are saying, well, here are these things so that you can take notice of me, right? It's something that we long for really deeply, right? We don't want to be lost in the crowd. We want somebody to see us and take notice of us. We want somebody to recognize us. And not all of us are gifted to be rock stars so that we can't eat pizza in peace, Sometimes we have to work a little harder. But I do want to share this as well. Sometimes the struggle to get noticed comes from our psychological needs. But sometimes not being noticed is a burden that society places on us. One of the great novels in the American canon, I know you can't use that language, English teachers will maybe yell at me later, but one of, the great no- one of the great American novels is Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man. I don't know how many of you have read it. I heartily recommend it to you. And Ralph Ellison wrote a, a novel about his own experience dealing with racism in this country. And he titles the book The Invisible Man. He tells you right in the beginning. It's written like a memoir. And Ralph Ellison writes, 
I'm invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you sometimes see in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Now, there are a lot of reasons, and they're all societally constructed, that people do not see other people. But this is Ellison's description of racism. It's not seeing a person. It's seeing a race. It's seeing somebody as a social menace or a social problem. And not seeing an individual and knowing their stories. Now, um, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> say it later. This is something that we do so often. It is a reality that Ruth experienced it's a reality that continues today for the countless migrant workers who come across our border to pick our food. They remain nameless and faceless, and without them, we wouldn't uh, have a society. We wouldn't have food. This was the reality that Ruth experienced. But think of all of those people who work and serve in the city, making sure that hotel rooms are clean, making sure that uh, food gets on the table in all those, well, uh, all those fancy restaurants, that plates are clean. Think about how many people are invisible to you as you go about your day, or maybe you're one of those people who are, are struggling right now to get on your feet. You're struggling to find a home and a place to be or a job and you are just one of those invisible people who is constantly going and seeking for help. And if you're here, welcome. There is nobody invisible in God's house. I don't do this, but could you applaud that? Nobody is invisible in God's house. And we reject the kind of reality that Ralph Ellison is pointing out here that says that people are allowed to be invisible and escape our notice. Man, being in Columbus, too, I was in this coffee shop. And, uh, you know, this coffee shop had all these progressive slogans on the walls. All right? You've been to these kinds of places not too far from um, Ohio State. It was across the street from a rare book dealer there. But anyway, uh, I, I just was there, and it was just this very welcoming, very inviting place. But I, while I was there, I was there reading for about three hours. The staff came up to about two people that had come in just to maybe get a glass of water maybe just to get in from outside, and told them if they weren't customers, they had to leave, which was so funny with all the progressive slogans on the wall. Now, I, anyway, so no matter how it happens, this is a difficult experience for human beings. And it is spoken of in the Psalms, uh, which I love to see uh, a Christian band like set this one to music. Uh, you won't see these kinds of psalms set to music too much. The psalmist writes, In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look on my right hand and see, there is no one who takes notice of me. 
No refuge remains to me, and no one cares for me. The reason that is in the Psalms is to show us whenever we are in that place, it's when our cry goes to God. And I don't know what it would have been like for Ruth day in, day out, going to hot fields, going to glean. And by the way, uh, you know, those of you who are big, big fans of like having a Christian society, uh, I would turn your attention to Leviticus chapter 23, where it says you don't plow your field all the way to the edge. You always leave some leftovers for the, um, for the poor and for the resident alien and the foreigner among you. So she was going there to collect what leftovers there could be for her. This is glean, right? So after a, a stalk was picked over, it would kind of be laying on the ground, right? This is kind of the equivalent of, of dumpster diving, right? So she would go and she'd be by herself, right? A, um, a female by herself, subject to probably uh, assault, uh, being lonely, having no man there to watch over her and take care for her of her in that patriarchal society. This was probably her prayer. And this was a life that she had sacrificed to go into on behalf of her mother-in-law. And so it's in the midst of this pain that Boaz recognizes her. Boaz takes notice of her and says, I know your kindness to my kinswoman, and I know your struggle too. But he doesn't stop there. Right? I, Christianity Today did an article uh, years ago where they interviewed the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and they asked him the difference between Billy Graham and Martin Luther King. Now, I think Billy Graham was a great preacher. I take nothing away from him, but I thought this quote was bone-chilling. And Jesse Jackson said, the difference between Billy Graham and Martin Luther King was that Billy Graham would have taken pity, gone to the Hebrew slaves, and said, God sees your pain, save your souls. He would have taken all those conversions, done baptism, and then went and golfed with Pharaoh. Martin Luther King would have said, I see your pain, I know your pain, I know your struggle, let my people go. That's the difference. And this is what Boaz did. He didn't just say, well, I see your struggle. Hey, it's nice for you to be here. He said, come, be with my people. Stay with my young women. Stay by my young men who will protect you and keep you safe. And then he says, guess what? No gleaning anymore. What I want done for you is I want people to let you pick from the upright stocks, right? You get first in line at the buffet, right? When all the, all the food, you, you know that feeling, right? When they bring out like the macaroni and cheese or something and there, there's like the new batch, right? That's what, what Ruth gets to experience. And they give her so much um, it's not a word that we use. Rebecca, I understand. I probably can't pronounce it either. It's effa. 
right? And so all these biblical measures, right? This is a chart of biblical uh, dry measures in case it ever shows up on Jeopardy, right? So at the bottom you have a quart, and that's pretty close to our quart. An effa is 20 quarts. Look how big that is, right? It's kind of, it's abundant. She goes home with all of that, and Naomi's like, oh my gosh, there's no way you can pick that up gleaning. And she says, you know what? Uh, Boaz, for some reason, recognized me. And listen to Naomi's answer. She says, oh my gosh, God's kindness knows both the living and the dead. Right? And didn't she say that last week, folks? Didn't she say, I'm dead? My life is over. God has forgotten me. And it's because of what Boaz did that she said, wow, even though I'm dead, God is kind to me. As the great Frederick Beekner, who just passed away this week, uh, the great Christian uh, novelist and essayist, as he said, the resurrection means the worst thing is not the last thing. And Naomi found this out firsthand when her daughter-in-law came home with that giant bucket of grain. Right? So Boaz does three things that we are called to do for our neighbors. Right? It begins with recognition. Now, this verb recognition in Hebrew can have good or bad connotations. And the bad connotation is important to know. When you recognize somebody as a judge, it's a bad thing, right? When you give somebody special treatment when it comes to matters of the law, that's wrong. You don't help out your business associate. You don't help out somebody who gave you a bribe. You don't help out somebody just because they happen to be a former president. I'm sorry. You don't show partiality in judging because all people are equal before the law of God. But in your personal interaction. That's what you are called to do. Jesus will later tell a story about a good Samaritan, a good somebody that was worse than a foreigner in Israel, who we're told saw a person and recognized their need because they were beat up and left for dead in the middle of the road. And they were moved in their heart to go and help Right? But recognizing somebody is more than just helping them. It's more than just handing someone something. Right? Boaz gives us a model for this. I see you. I know your story. I want to help. It's not just giving things. It's entering into that relationship. And that relationship is deepened when we hear stories. And that's what we do in this church. We welcome people in and we hear their stories. 
We don't have recipients of charity here. We have people that come in here and tell their story because everybody has said that prayer at one time in their life in this room. Will somebody please take notice of me? Will somebody please walk with me on this lonely path that I'm on? That's what it means to recognize somebody. It's a promise that God gave the Israelites through the prophet Jeremiah. You know, there are people who are going to be exiles from their land, but I will recognize them. God says right in Jeremiah, and that is how we are called to live with our neighbors. First, to hear their stories, and if we don't know, ask. Right? I, uh, I often tell this story of, of uh, I, I, I see, uh, yeah, I talk about this in Bible study. One time I saw a car that was just covered in like bumper stickers that had all these like outrageous faith slogans like about the rapture and like, I'm serious, like the hood, the side panels, the trunk, right? And I've been doing ministry for so long. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit that did this to me. Right when I was in seminary, I would have gone, man, this person is really nuts. I'm going to find them and tell them that they're wrong. But after 10 years of ministry, I went, wonder what that person's story is. <laughs> right? It's a change that comes over you. And then once you hear somebody's story, you begin to walk together, just like Boaz did to Ruth. You begin to give them safety and give them peace and give them a sense of community. It's what happens every time we come into this church. God gives you a gift and says, I recognize you. I notice you. This is for you. And we share what we have with one another. It's how we're called to be community. It's more than just charity. I found my call pretty profoundly in two places when I back, went back to my uh, old high school uh, to uh, work as kind of a, a teacher of study skills. And, and uh, anyway, uh, we had this ministry every Sunday night where we would go out. It was called the Society of St. Benedict Joseph Labra, who was a saint that lived sometime. Um, and we would go out. Uh, it would be a bunch of us. We'd cook some food. We'd gather food together. And then we would just get in vans and drive through Cleveland and uh, find people where they were sitting and uh, bring them uh, bring them food. Now, after Browns games, this got pretty wild uh, because it was like, uh, were you just at the game and really sad, or do you like actually need food? Uh, were you just tailgating in the muni lot since 6 a.m.? Uh, but uh, there was this uh, older guy who always did that, and he wasn't a faculty member, um, and his kids had graduated, his boys had graduated long ago, and I, I got to know him a little bit, and I wanted to hear his story, like kind of like, why are you still here? Uh, and he said, I was taking my boys to uh, the Indians game, now the Guardians, I was taking my boys to the Indians game, and uh, we were walking by, and there was a gentleman just kind of like laying on the sidewalk, and my son went up to him, called him by his name, said, how are you doing? and talked with him for like five minutes. And I went, this isn't just charity that's happening here. It's relationships. I can't stop coming here. And that's the transformation that happens to us constantly in our lives. And there's someone behind it. So I was in uh, Cafe Rio uh, about a year ago, and I, I had another sighting. I was there with Noah, and uh, this family was sitting at a table, and I, I walked over rather sheepishly, and I said, hey, I hope this isn't weird, 
but did I do a funeral for you guys a couple years ago? And the, and the widower stood up and put his arms around me and gave me the biggest hug in the world. So I'd known them for some time. When I was on CPE, they, uh, they had me do um, some work in East Cleveland um, in a, uh, what was a mission church, uh, but was a thriving uh, congregation called Advent Lutheran Church. And um, the, the, my patient had been a member there, and, and I kind of ran into them and um, got to know them a little bit better as they were, uh, as she was in hospice and uh, walked with them, was there every day. We sang songs. Um, they made me feel like a member of their family. Uh, I went to plan the, the funeral at their house, and, and Marissa had something to do, so I had, uh, when it was just Noah, I had baby Noah with me. And uh, when we got together, they just went, oh my gosh, was that the little baby that was in our house? And we told stories. It was that recognition that came from us walking together, from the gifts they gave me about what it meant to be a Christian family going through loss. And in there, in that suffering, was a hidden person on a cross who suffered to walk with us and to give us indescribable gifts. It is when you are buried, buried, and powerfully enmeshed, deep in the kind of community like that, that you start to recognize somebody else. And guess what? You can bother him all the time when you're getting your when he's getting his pizza. Amen. Amen. <laughs>